Father in heaven. We pray for these things, Jesus. We pray for these things that are so out of our control. And yet we trust you to be faithful in all of them. That in the midst of these, that your gospel would go forward across this world. Whether it's, Lord, through fires happening in British Columbia, would you keep people safe? Lord, in the country of Haiti, as they try to rebuild after this earthquake shook them all apart, I I know nothing about that kind of destruction. Would you take care of them? Just the needs they have right now? Lord, for, for our fields that are dry, we thank you that this morning we woke up to the ground being wet. Lord Jesus, this is a reminder, even in, even in our own neighborhood, how painful it can be to trust you and wait for you, and how your timing looks different than ours. But we will wait for you. Thank you for making the ground wet this morning. Lord Jesus, for the Christians who had church this morning in Afghanistan, for the people who are scared for their lives, have never went to church feeling like that. I don't know what that feels like. But I pray that the gospel would grow in their country, Lord Jesus, more powerfully than it ever has. That as people look for hope and look for purpose and look for peace, as they look for security and safety, my prayer is that they'd find Jesus. They'd find Jesus over and over and over. Lord, would we be humbled one day when we get to heaven and find more people in heaven from Afghanistan than from our own country. Take care of them, Jesus. The families, the moms, the children. It has to be such a scary time. Take care of them. Lord, for anything else that I'm not thinking of, for the different struggles that even other people in our church bring, for the struggles within their own families with their kids or with their grandkids, struggles with their work or struggles all with their friends. These are all things, Lord, that we hand to you. We know that you're faithful. But the way that you work these things out might be different than I expect and than I want. Help me to be okay with that. Thank you, Lord, that you've been faithful to a thousand generations before me. Give me the faith to trust that you'll be faithful right now. Lord, this is the prayer of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hmm. This morning, this morning I'm preaching. How about that? It's been a while, hasn't it? Remember the last time I preached? Oh, oh, Betsy. That was in April. Remember that? I was sitting right here. That was quite the moment. A lot of things have changed since then. My heart's in a better place in a lot of ways from then. But this morning, I need to confess to you some sin. Because a good friend of mine told me two weeks ago, after our prayer meeting on Monday night, that it was time for me to deal with my sin. So this morning, I'm going to tell you that story. We're going to read through Luke chapter 15, 
part of 18, part of 19, and then we're going to go into Matthew. I'm going to read with you as we go through some of the stories that God has shaped my life with this past week and a half. And we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would teach us powerful things and that this service would lead to great forgiveness for, for my own heart. This is going to be a lot of fun, church. When the Spirit moves, it's a good time. I was reading this in my devotions. And God's timing is a vicious thing in a good way. Life in a fallen world is hard. Ministry to fallen people is hard. Together they leave you exhausted and discouraged and tempted to be a tad cynical. You simply cannot live with sinners and not be sinned against. You can't live with people without seeing their true hearts revealed. I understand why people, after experiencing the hurt and disappointment that so often mars our relationships, that they decide to live in isolation or in a comfortable collection of terminally casual relationships. I understand why people say to themselves, I've been taken once, I won't be taken again. I understand why married couples choose to live in long-term Cold War relationships that lack intimate friendship and unity. I understand why ministry people often choose to live in functional isolation from the body of Christ. I understand why adult children choose to live a great distance away from their parents. I understand why many people dread the extended family gatherings that accompany the holidays. I understand why people hide their hurt and refuse to talk about painful topics with one another. I understand why people don't want to ask for help or give help when asked. This is my story. I understand that none of us have ever lived in one single relationship that hasn't disappointed us in some way. I understand that relationships are hard. But there is one other thing I understand, and it's that for the believer, relationships are not a lifestyle option. No, they're an essential piece of God's calling between your salvation and final resurrection. Biblical faith is fundamentally relational. It's shaped and driven by two primary communities. First and foremost, the community with God. That's the whole reason for our existence. Life is found in community with the Creator. Then there's God's call to not only live in sacrificing love of your neighbor, but also to be a tool in God's work in your neighbor's heart and life. You and I just don't have the choice of opting out of this. We're relational beings who've been called to lifelong community with God and other people. We need help to face the often overwhelming call to relationships, following God's high standards and not giving way to the desire to run. Part of God's purpose in corporate worship is to correct your vision about those relationships. If you're not looking at your relationships through the lens of God's amazing grace, you're not seeing those relationships accurately. So gathering after gathering is intended to enthrall you with the grandeur of God's grace that you can't think of anything better than to be a tool of that grace in the lives of other people. And with that devotion, God tore apart my sinful heart. 
and beautifully communicated exactly what that friend of mine said at that prayer meeting two weeks ago, that I had to deal with my pride. That I don't trust people enough to be honest about what's going on. I don't quickly ask for help. I try to do things on my own, and I suffer quietly. And that's the sin that I'm going to confess to you along with others this morning. That's not okay, church. It's not okay to live like that, not in light of the gospel. Because if I believe what I believe, and if I read the stories, and if they change my heart, then you should see it through my heart. It should be real and tangible. This last week, I got to speak at West Bank a few times. I got to speak to their uh, young teen camp, their youth camp, and once to all the staff members. I shared with them variations of these stories. And this morning, I'm going to share with you the full thing. This is the story of my lack of humility. This is the story of my entitlement. This is the story of me asking you for forgiveness and help. This is Luke 15. If you have your Bible, you should follow along. We're going to read some scripture this morning, church. We're in verse 11. This is the story of the lost son. Luke chapter 15, verse 11 says this. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I'll arise and I'll go to my father, and I'm going to say to him, Father... I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy, pay attention to that, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran to him, embraced him, kissed him. The son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said to his servants, quickly, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. Amen. Do you see how in this story, the perspective of the son changed. Often when we read this story in church, we ask the question, who do you identify with? Right? The young son, aware of his sin, coming before the father needing forgiveness, or do you identify with the older brother, who we'll get to in just a minute, who seems to have this sense of entitlement based on what he's done? But take a look at the change that happens in the younger brother's heart. 
At the beginning of the story, he felt like he was worthy of half his father's stuff. He felt like he was owed it. And his father graciously offered it to him. But after he had lost it all, he woke up to the reality that he wasn't worthy of any of it anymore. He was actually not even worthy to be considered a son. What was he worthy of? Worthy of being a servant. No one important. Someone to inherit nothing. Someone separated from the family forever. Just a servant. That's what he was worthy of now. I can, I can carry this worthiness into my relationship with God that's so toxic. Like based on the things that I do, based on my faith and on my prayers and on the reading of scripture, I begin to create inside of myself this prideful entitlement that when I pray, God should answer. When I go through hard times, God should relieve me of that. Because for some weird reason, my heart transfers from the one son to the other And I start to come before God with these expectations that aren't fair. I need to be reminded of what I'm truly worthy of. This is the story of the older brother. Verse 25. The older son, he was in the field. He came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what this meant. He said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him? He said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and this brother's found. Right away, this brother just snaps back into what he's worthy of. Father, look at me. Look at what I've done. Why haven't I received the blessing that I think that I deserve? Father, if you really loved me, it would look like this, 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 and this. But I don't see this, 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 and this. So obviously you don't care. But if the Father's love for me and for you is based on what we do for him, do you know what we deserve? Nothing. We deserve nothing. As I kept reading in my devotions, I hit chapter 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector parable. This is chapter 18 of Luke, verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated other people with contempt. He said this, Two men went into the temple to go pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, not like extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, that I'm not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But look at the tax collector. He's standing a far way off. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beats his own breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
God be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other man. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see that in this story? That when we come before God, having the right heart posture makes all the difference in the world. See, one of these characters in the story, this is a parable, right? So one of these people had been faithful through obedient action for a long time, and the other one disobedient. One had lived their life striving for God, and the other one the exact opposite, completely for himself. And yet in the moment that they come before God, one looks at himself and sees the sin and admits it openly, lowering himself, taking a humble posture, recognizing that in God's presence, he's completely sinful and just in need of mercy and nothing else. The other one comes before the Lord, looks at himself, sees himself as worthy, and offers up to God his obedience as some sort of righteousness. God, look at what I've done. Aren't you proud? You should probably clap for me. Look at all the good that I've done. Aren't I great? It's this self-elevation. Now his obedience, those actions weren't necessarily wrong. He, he may have been trying to be obedient to follow the law, but this perspective of I come before God and I lift up all my righteousness to him and try to show it off, in light of God's holiness, nothing we do is righteous. And you need to recognize that within your heart because the heart of the Pharisee is broken. The heart of the Pharisee is looking directly at himself and yet the tax collector the exact opposite. He realizes that his heart is broken. He can offer God nothing that he has. He just simply says, I'm sorry. I'm broken and this is who I am. One lowers himself in the presence of the king. He won't even look up. He lowers himself in the presence of the king. Jesus says, there is a lost child. I came for the lost. I will lift him up. The other one is trying to lift himself up before God. But his heart is so broken, he is going to be brought low. He's going to be humbled. You think this is convicting for a pastor as he reads this and his heart's not in the right place? Don't even get started with me as I read that story. It gets worse, though. It gets worse because Luke is building. Like, there's a reason why when you read the Bible, I, I challenge you to read more than a few verses at a time in your devotional life. Read chapters at a time because it'll really mess, it'll mess you up because you're going to see these bigger themes. I take a look at the rich young ruler in Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus might be one of the funnest stories to tell kids, but it's like this heartbreaking story as you read it as an adult. Look at how these two characters uh, compare and contrast each other. So this is the rich young ruler in Luke 18, verse 18. Look at this story. A ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good. No one except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't lie. Honor your father and mother. And what's his response? All of these I have kept from my youth. 
I have done it, Jesus. These are all the things I've done. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, there's still one thing you lack. Sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he'd become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? He goes on to say it's almost impossible for a rich man to enter God's kingdom. Why? Because the throne of their heart has been given to their love for money and their love for self. So for God to have that place on the throne of their heart, the money and self has to come off of that throne. And that's one of the hardest things in life to do. So even though this young rich ruler had lived this life full of obedient actions, his heart was so far away from God. But do you know what's not impossible for God? For a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's almost impossible. Because in chapter 19, the very next story is, who? It's Zacchaeus. A rich man who's going to give up control of the throne of his heart. In the presence of the king. Oh, I love this story. I'm going to get excited. I'm trying. Contain yourself, Darren. You can do this. Okay. Luke 19. This is the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus entered Jericho. So that's on the way to Jerusalem, right? Just a city down the road. He was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran ahead, he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down. He received him joyfully. Stop for a second and imagine this scenario. This is where it gets breaking. Like, this is where it's going to cut your heart. And if you're not the kind of person that gets emotional, this is the moment where it's going to happen. Zacchaeus deserved nothing from the king. Zacchaeus would have been spat on by his own people. Do you understand that? And if you don't, then your understanding of the children's story hasn't grown enough yet. But that's okay. It's going to happen right now. Most likely a very Jewish boy who grew up in a very Jewish world, who turned his back on all the Jews to steal from them, to give the money away to the enemy that was murdering them, the Romans. Most likely was alienated. Most likely had no friends. Most likely was an outcast in his own town. You think good Jews would talk to him? You think Jewish teachers would acknowledge him? So when this rabbi comes to town, the one everyone is claiming is the son of the Most High God, the Messiah King, predicted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. When he comes through town, do you think he'll even look at Zacchaeus? There's no way on earth until it happens. Until the Messiah says 
by name to him, I want to spend time with you. All of a sudden, for the first time, Zacchaeus felt loved and accepted like someone cared. Why would he care for me? I'm a broken sinner. I'm a chief tax collector. I don't deserve the king to know my name. And the king says, I want to be with you, Zacchaeus. With you. Not the rest of them. You. It changed his life. In verse 7, when they saw it, they all grumbled. Isn't that heartbreaking? When the rest of the crowd saw Jesus reach out to this tax collector in love, instead of clapping, going, fantastic work, Jesus. Really trying to reach out to those tax collectors in the community. He's going to have a huge impact on Zacchaeus' life. I just bet it. Just watch. Watch how changed Zacchaeus will be after this visit. No, it's the exact opposite. How dare Jesus... Show love to him, the tax collector. I'm the one worthy of the visit. I'm the one worthy of lunch with Jesus. I'm the one who should be receiving that attention from the king. So they grumble. They grumble. They thought they were worthy of Jesus' attention, but it's all given to someone who doesn't deserve it at all. Do you know what happens in that moment? Zacchaeus' life is changed forever. Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, so he's calling him master already, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've stolen from anyone anything, I'll give it back four times. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he's also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus, you are the purpose for me being on this earth. Lost people. And I wonder if Jesus reached out his finger and touched Zacchaeus on the chest. This house, salvation has come to today. Why? Because for the first time in his life, money and himself fell off the throne of his own heart. And now his heart belongs to Jesus. All of a sudden that money doesn't matter anymore. And you have this rich young ruler who lived his whole life obediently but wouldn't surrender his heart. And you have Zacchaeus who lived his whole life in sin and in a moment of love surrenders his heart. One of them received salvation. But it's because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. You know who he didn't come to save? The found. I won't even let you answer it. The found. If you don't think you need saving, you're not going to reach out for saving. The rich young ruler doesn't think he needs saving. Zacchaeus knows he needs nothing but. So who is Darren in this story? Is he Zacchaeus, the one who's thankful? The one who's grateful? Or am I the rich young ruler? God, look at what I've done. Look at how I've served you. Why aren't things going better in my life? I've earned it, I've earned it, and I'm worthy of it. So when my friend two weeks ago called me out at the prayer meeting and told me that I needed to deal with my pride, it was the sweetest words that I'd heard all day. It was the most bizarre thing, though, to finish a prayer time. We just prayed together for like an hour. And my friend comes over, smiles at me. How are you doing? Good. You need to deal with your pride. 
You can't keep living in sin like this any longer. You need to deal with it now. Nice to see you too. How have you been? No, it's just like you need to deal with your pride and it has to happen now. But instead of getting defensive and instead of getting angry, it was the most kind, loving thing this person had said. Why? Because they saw something in me that was not right. And somehow through, through prayer knew that it needed to be said. And they said it to me. And it wasn't in this condemning way. It wasn't in this, Darren, you've been such a bad person. You should be ashamed of yourself. It was, Darren, sin is getting in the way of your relationship with the king. And if you deal with it, if you deal with it, imagine what will happen in your life. But you have to be ready to get it out of the way. It has to come off the throne of your own heart. And if it does, watch the change take place. It's a loving thing when you call out sin in someone else. This is not supposed to happen to me. It's supposed to happen to you. And it happened to me. And it made me uncomfortable, but in a good way. So I knew that I was preaching a couple weeks, and I wondered how God was going to bring out my pride. And then I realized I had to ask you for forgiveness. Why? Because Matthew chapter 18 uh, last week, Scott and Mabel talked about forgiveness and Skittles, and I missed it. I love Skittles. Back when I was a teenager, I used to use wrappers from Skittles as bookmarks in my Bible. So if I was flipping to a certain story, it would be a certain flavor of Skittles. The sour Skittles were at one point in my Bible. The tropical Skittles were at a different point. So it was neat that last week I missed the Skittles. Matthew 18. Verse 21, the parable of the unforgiving servant. This is why I need to ask you to forgive me. Peter came up and he said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and have to forgive him? How many times? Like seven maybe? It sounds like a lot. How many, Jesus? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven. Peter, I say 70 times seven. The number of holiness, the number of completion. So many times. So he tells him this story. Peter, the kingdom of God, imagine it being compared to a king. He wished to settle accounts with his servants, people like Darren. And when he began to settle, one servant was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. A talent is 20 years wages, and he owed 10,000 thousand of them. What had this man done to owe this kind of money to the king? This amount of debt would consume him. It would destroy him. Verse 25, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees. He implored him, have mercy with me. I'll pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the entire debt. It's incredible. It's incredible. That's life-changing forgiveness. That's life-altering forgiveness. It's amazing. What a master to do that for his servant. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii is a day's wages. hundred bucks, pocket change. He owed him a hundred of them. He sees that servant. He began to choke him 
And he said to him, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I'll pay you, I'll pay you. He refused. No, he went and threw him in prison until he should pay the debt. Incredible. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported it to the master, all that had taken place. And when his master summoned him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Then Jesus says this, also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from the heart. Why would God, the heavenly Father, do that to us if we don't offer forgiveness? Why did this story cut me in half? It's because of the change of heart. If God forgives me of absolutely everything, and yet the moment something bad happens in my life, I put myself back on the throne of my own heart. I become upset. I become sinful. The moment someone does something to me, they owe me. The moment something bad happens in my life, God owes me. The moment God doesn't come through just the way I want, I'm upset. Something happens in my own family, something happens in my church family, and it doesn't suit me best. And my heart just slips back and back and back. And like, I know you see... You see the positive side of me so often, and that's a good thing because it's real and it's authentic. And yet my heart slips back and back and back. And in this story, the servant who's been forgiven everything is expected one thing, to have a changed heart. But the proof is in the pudding, and the pudding shows what? He didn't have a changed heart. And the master throws him in jail. And then Jesus says, that's what God in heaven's going to do, Darren, if you don't have a changed heart. If you don't have a changed heart, you're going to be thrown in prison for the rest of time. Hell. Why? Because a changed heart is proof of salvation. It's proof that Jesus has cleansed me from my sin. The Holy Spirit has taken the place upon the throne of my own heart. And people who have no change of heart are the rich young ruler. People who have no change of heart are the Pharisee. People that have no change of heart might end up being older brothers. It might end up being them unless their heart is in the right place. But if their heart isn't changed, then separation from God is all that they can expect. So why does the moment life get hard, my heart travel right back to sin. The one thing I don't want to do, and I do it. But the thing I truly want to do, I struggle to do it. Paul talks about that. Romans chapter 7, right? We all have Romans memorized, right? I don't. I, I had to look it up. Romans 7. Like, Paul, the missionary, says, I was the worst sinner in the world. I was the worst sinner in history. And all I want to do is follow God, but I can't do it. I struggle. The very thing I don't want to do, it's sin. I constantly do it. So why am I so ashamed to come up here and tell you that I struggle with sin too? If Paul can admit that to all of his churches, and then yet in the same letters that Paul writes, he says to them, imitate Christ as I do. Imitate me. You might think that's an arrogant thing for him to say. He's telling the churches through his sermon 
to live just like him. Aren't we supposed to just tell people to live like Jesus? And yet Paul understood the gospel and it had changed his heart in such a way that with honesty he could say to the church, imitate me in my life because I am living a life for the king and that's the way we're supposed to live. Are we going to do it without sin? No. Sin is always going to be a part of the equation. But if our heart is changed, sin won't win. Pride. Pride is what I have to admit to you. I struggled to ask for help. And I come before God sometimes with an arrogant attitude of how dare you let bad things happen in my church and in my work and in my life because of how I've dedicated myself to you. Sin shows up in my life through anger. When I'm angry at people in my own life, people that struggle with sin just like me, and yet I'm not angry with myself, I'm angry with them. Sin shows up in my life when I let it get to my head that people are encouraging me and people are proud of me and I start to think to myself they should be because I'm doing good work. And it's not right. Sin shows up in my life when I'm pleased that other people are hurting. Sin shows up in my life when I don't feel compassion and mercy for people that I should feel compassion and mercy for. Sin shows up in my life when I think life would just be easier without this person or this person. Sin shows up in my life when I believe the lies of Satan that this isn't going to work. That life is only going to get harder and it's not going to get better. But those are lies. And Psalm 145 tells me that God's been faithful for all the generations in the past. So why do I doubt him so much right now? But I need you to forgive me because throughout the past year, my heart has not been in a good place all the time. When we were restricted from seeing each other, when we started to see each other, just everything, heart just drifts back to sin over and over, anger, resentment, bitterness, over and over, over the silliest things. And I can't be your pastor and yet allow this sin to fester within me. That's not fitting. I can't be forgiven the world's largest debt and then be mad at you for a small comment that you make at me. Do you understand that? Because if I harbor on that, then nothing has changed inside of my heart. So that big forgiveness that God offered to me on the cross doesn't mean very much. This isn't a pointed sermon. This isn't, this isn't a sermon for you or you or you to get your life together. This is your pastor saying, I messed up. I messed up. And you might think, Darren, you haven't, you haven't hurt me. You haven't said anything mean to me. You're just fine. No, I've allowed sin to have a foothold in my life for a long time now. I need to trust you more. I need to trust that I can share with the church family the sin that I'm dealing with. And I, I need to trust that you won't judge me for that. I need to trust that you'll love me and support me. Because if I want you to do the same thing with me, I need to be able to do that with you. And I struggle with that trust. I really do. I trust myself that I don't trust you all the time. I don't trust that I can share my hurts and that you won't hold some of them against me. 
And I struggle that some of my hurts, if I share them, they'll come up at unopportune times when I make a mistake. So all of a sudden I bottle them up and I never bring them up. But what is the good of this family if I don't actually treat you like family and trust you? Then these are just surface level acquaintances. I don't need more of those in my life. This has to be real and it has to start with me. The teacher has to be willing to humble himself. Otherwise, he's not a teacher worth listening to. I need to be willing to be the washer of feet. Otherwise, none of the words I have to say mean anything. We're going to sing, and I'm excited. We're going to sing about the power of Jesus. We're going to sing about what he's done for us. And I want to encourage you, church, that if this morning, if any of if my words have rung true for you, if you also feel like you've been struggling with this, you can come talk to me. I feel like now we can be vulnerable. We can share some of our sin with each other. But don't live in it. And I can't either. I can't go home from this feeling, woe is me, for I've been broken so many times. I need to go home remembering the incredible debt that I've been forgiven. That Jesus would dare come dwell in my house like Zacchaeus. Why would he come to me? And I need need to be thankful that none of my righteousness will get me into his kingdom. Even back into relationship with him. It's all his righteousness. Oh, I could just go on and on about this all day long. Let's pray together. We're going to call up the worship team and we're going to sing, church. Father, oh, I pray this morning that that a change would happen in my heart that I wouldn't go back from. I pray, God, that my church family would forgive me for my sin, for my poor attitude, and my lack of trust, and for my pride. Lord Jesus, I pray that, that my reflection in my heart would be on your great gift, that in you, in Jesus, I've been set free, and I've been reunited with you in relationship, and none of my mistakes are going to separate me from you anymore. That in you and your sacrifice, perfect forgiveness has taken place. Perfect reconciliation. And now I'm just an ambassador of you to this world. Like, my hope isn't found in any of the good things I do as a pastor of this church. That my hope is only found in Jesus. And without him, none of this matters. None of this matters. My hope is only found in you. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for forgiving me a debt that I can never repay. Thank you that in you there is victory and power. You've set us free. And God, I pray that you would heal my heart and heal the heart of my church. That amazing things would happen in this family. That your Holy Spirit would move in us, Lord, in ways that we haven't seen. Jesus, all of these things I can't do, but I trust that you can. I love you, and I pray this in your holy name. Amen.